Hi, and welcome to another Cyber Podcast episode. I'm your host, Christoph Limpler, and in this episode, Daniel Fry joins us to talk about becoming a CISO and then leaving that position to start his own cybersecurity startup company. His startup aimed to replace password and 2FA authentication with passwordless authentication. So we'll chat about his experience founding that business and the challenges that he went through during the two years of running it, and then why he decided that it was time to shut it down. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. It's really great to have you here. Uh, thanks for having me. I know we've talked about this uh, on and off for a couple months, so it's great to uh, great to be here. Yes, yeah, great to finally be able to sit down and, and get it done. But uh, let's start from the beginning and let's start by talking a little bit more about your background and, and how you got started in IT in the first place. My background is very different. Uh, I'm probably one of the, the outliers. Uh, so, I had, you know, first Atari when I was like three, I got my first computer when I was 10. Uh, and then from the moment I got my first computer, I knew like the rest of my life was going to be spent with computers. I, had, I just <laughs> knew, you know, with, without any question. Um, was real active in computers throughout middle school, high school, uh, graduated from high school and uh, promptly went into Georgia Tech. Uh, at the time, it was like, I think, the number two school for computer science. Uh, and then I promptly failed out uh, about three quarters in, um, failed COC2 twice. And they're like, nope, you're done. And so that was kind of like a huge blow. Um, I never really failed at anything before. So, you know, it's like trying to explain to your parents uh, how you went from a straight A student to failing out of college. And it was a really weird period of time because it, I had never failed at anything. And so I ended up getting a job with a startup out in California. They were doing case-based reasoning software and uh, worked there, I guess, about six months doing consulting work. Um, loved to work. And it was one of those things where it was, I was able to get into, I'll call it a computer job. And I knew immediately, like, yeah, I, I absolutely had to go back to school and that this is, was absolutely what I wanted to do. Um, so you could think about it in maybe traditional terms as an internship, uh, but for me, it was slightly different. So ended up going back to school, uh, went to Southern Polytech, uh, kind of community college here in school, started uh, working at startups, doing IT, and, you know, it was largely self-taught and uh, ended up uh, staying with a startup here for a couple of years in Atlanta. Uh, they went through a couple acquisitions, uh, and and then a friend of mine called me up and said, hey, I'm going to this new company, and they're hosting PeopleSoft, and this was uh, 2001, and at the time, no one was really hosting PeopleSoft. Um, you know, like, we have terms now, like, you know, multi-tenancy and SaaS, and this was pre all of that. There's no cloud computing, there's no mobile computing, um, and the internet was still, you know, relatively new, high-speed internet was still relatively new um, in 99, 2000. So... Uh, went over there and worked on the server team, uh, went through uh, that for a couple of years. And then around 2005, had a conversation with my boss and I was like, you know, look, I think this cybersecurity thing is going to be really cool. And I'd really like to focus in on that. And at the time I was running all of our Cisco equipment, networking and, and firewalls. So there was kind of that leap to go from, you know, I'll call it networking into security just by nature of you were the person that owned responsibility for the firewalls. Um, that was in 2005. And then, uh, you know, cybersecurity kind of took off after that. Um, I left uh, the company in 2011-ish uh, for about nine months, went and did uh, some granted uh, consulting shop uh, as a general manager. I did that about nine months, uh, but then I was kind of ready to get off the road because I was traveling every week. And during that time, uh, the company that I was at uh, prior, it called me up today. We went through, you know, merger acquisition. We've doubled in size. Um, and so we're really looking for someone to come take on the CISO role and come back. 
and we would love for you to do that. So I uh, ended up going back uh, and I stayed there through 2020 when they got acquired. I'm so glad you mentioned the part about failing Calc 2 and, and that being an issue for you. And, and here's a couple of reasons why. Number one, I, I started out going to college for computer engineering and it turned out that for the first two years of computer engineering program, there was basically zero involved with computers. It was all electrical engineering. It was all mathematics. I think I went through Calc 2 as well, and I hated it. It was just awful. Yes. I'm not good at math, I and Calc made no sense whatsoever. And so I'm just grinding through these classes, and I'm like, this is the wrong degree for me. I should not be doing this. And so I switched to another one that was a lot more focused on actual computing and less on, uh, on electrical engineering and mathematics. And that turned out to be a much better fit for me. And one of the reasons I bring that up is because a lot of times I'll have people join the community and they'll say, hey, I suck at math, but I still want to be in cybersecurity or in IT in general. Do you think that's a problem? Because everybody tells me I need to be really good at math. The answer is that's not a problem. You don't have to be really good at math. As long as you can add a few numbers here and there and figure out logic, you don't have to be a math whiz. You can still succeed. Would you agree with that, Dan? Yeah, I agree 100%. Um... You know, my pathway was kind of different than everybody else. And, you know, I could never quite wrap my brain around like calculus, physics, chemistry. The computer science classes were great. Like I was interested. I, I was able to, you know, do the work. It was easy work. It just came to me naturally. And it was that like grind that I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it. Um, and I think that's probably a really important point for people that feel like they have to go get a four-year degree to get into cyber. You know, I learned by hands-on. Um, I had a lab at home. Every Sunday morning, I would get up and go sit in my lab for four or five hours. Um, had router switches, stuff that I'd cobbled together, things I'd bought off of eBay that were, you know, hand-me-downs running old software versions, just so I could I could learn about it. And you know, I think that there's something to be said about taking a non-traditional approach. And yeah, I look back like on my career. So it took me nine years to finally get done with my undergrad. And when I finally got done, I was already, you know, IT director, um, was already, you know, nine, 10 years of work experience. And, you know, it was kind of light years ahead of people coming out of college because I had been in the mix uh, constantly during those nine years doing stuff. And particularly in tech, it moves so fast that by the time you get out of, out of college, you're, you're, if you're not doing stuff outside of school, um, then you, you're, kind of marketability is actually, I think, a little bit less. Mm -hmm. Those are, are really, really good points. Uh, I remember when we were starting the first semester, the dean of the school came on stage and said, I hate to tell you this, but after the four years of this program, the things you're learning in year one and year two will probably already be outdated because technology is moving so quickly. So that you're, you're not... The idea of that, right, the point of that is is you're not necessarily learning how to follow instructions on a manual for a specific technology. It's you're learning how to apply technology to solve problems at the end of the day. And some of those might involve a little bit of math. Many of those will not. Also depends on the position that you're going for and so on and so forth. So th that's a really good point. Speaking of positions, yeah. I know you mentioned that you ended up at the CISO level. What would be some tips or tricks that you could provide to any listener right now that's uh, maybe starting out or they're already midway through their career, whatever, and they're really aiming for that CISO position? What would be some tips and tricks that you could give them? You know, I feel like there's a lot of people that don't really understand what a CISO does. Um, hey, a lot of the people I've talked to look at a CISO role and they say, oh, you know, if you're if you're a CISO, then you must know everything there is to know about hacking. And that's not necessarily true. Um, 
if you're steering towards more of a senior technical resource than yes, like, you know, if you want to be the world's best pen tester, um, you know, reverse engineering malware, stuff like that, then yeah, you, you have to be extremely technical. Um, but more than likely, you're not going to be a CISO. Uh, the CISO role, in the same way that a, a reverse engineer, uh, kind of malware type role or a, a offensive person that's doing pen testing, um, you know, red teaming, has to know how to hack systems. Um, they have to know the systems in really, really good detail, um, you know, kernel, memory, all that stuff. Uh, a CISO has to do the same thing, but they have to do it for a business. So it's much more um, at, at a CISO level about understanding how a business operates and, and more specifically how a market operates. And then more specifically than that, how your business or the company that you work for operates inside of that particular market. And it is very, very difficult to be a good CISO if you don't really understand um, both the cybersecurity side and some of the technical components, uh, but more importantly, understand the business side of things. And a lot of people look at a, a CISO role and say, you know, CISO stands for Chief Information Security Officer. And I would argue that uh, CISO really stands for Chief Business Systems Officer. And you really have to understand how the business uses systems, what risks are out there, what threats are out there, uh, but more importantly, convey that to the business in terms of the business understands. Like you can't just go into it and say, you know, this is uh, risk and we need to do this. And um, it just doesn't quite work like that. You have to really go to the business and understand what risks they're willing to take and phrase uh, the risks that they're taking in terms that they understand. So you were a CISO and then one day you decided, you know what, I want to leave that position and not only join the startup life instead, but create your own, your very own business. And I, I don't, I hear different stats for this, right? I feel like a new stat comes out every single year, but I heard a stat a couple of days ago that was saying that 94% of startups end up failing between years one and year three. So you're in this position that's probably a, a quote unquote cushy position I'm sure you're doing really well. And one day you're like, you know what? I'm going to go <laughs> and start this business that has a 94% chance of, of failing. Can you walk us through what the mindset was with that? So that was actually exactly why I left. Uh, it had turned into that kind of cushy, automated job. Um, you know, there's a point in time while I'd been there, you know, 20 years. So I had 15 of that was spent building uh, all of the security apparatus, so building the team, building all the technology, um, you know, building processes, training, policy, everything. And so we transitioned from what I'll call, you know, building mode into kind of maintenance mode. Um, and I'm a builder by nature, like that's what gets me excited. So it was one of those things that it just, it wasn't, I didn't have the same get up and go to work passion. Uh, so that was kind of one reason. And there was there was a, a variety of reasons that kind of all coalesced into the end of me leaving. But um, that was one. The second was uh, I went back uh, to Georgia Tech and got an MBA. Um, and while I was at the MBA program, one of the, the course that I took uh, was uh, management of technology, which was uh, basically how to go do a startup. So they focus pretty heavily on lean startup methodology and, and starting a going starting a business and doing customer discovery. And so there's two guys that I met uh, during grad school. We became friends and we said, yeah, you know, we should go do a go do a, a startup together. And so that was kind of, you know, fortuitous in that, you know, I was getting to this point where I was looking for something new, different. Um, had met them. So I kind of had a, a founding team put together. Uh, and then in February of 2020, uh, the company I was with got acquired by Accenture. And so I'm like, all right, this is kind of the perfect 
perfect storm. Um, I'm ready to kind of go do my own thing. I've got a team uh, of folks that I want to work with. And, you know, the company company fundamentally is, is going to change right during the acquisition. And, you know, after being there 20 years, um, you know, I'd always uh, in that 20 years tinkered with startups on the side. And so it was one of those things that's like, all right, you know, like now's the time I've got the, the savings in the bank. Um, you know, I got the team and, you know, it was a, a clean, good exit, you know, not just abandoning the company, you know, off to, uh, um, you know, the wild west. And, uh, so yeah, it just, it, everything just kind of came together at that moment. It's like, all right, time to go, go make the leap. And so you started this business that, that was focusing on passwordless authentication that we'll talk a little bit more about in just a second. And you ran it for about two years, like you said, at some point in 2020, what ha- what ended up happening to the business? Um, so it was a combination of factors. So we got started in February of 2020. Uh, we incorporated March the 4th and I think COVID became a thing like March the 8th. So we had literally started the company two weeks a week before like the pandemic. So the world that we had originally started to build in, uh, was a totally different world than where all of a sudden we found ourselves. So at some point it was good because we hadn't started building anything. So, uh, we talked about it uh, throughout March and April and, and kind of poked around, did some customer discovery interviews and just really talked to folks. And, um, what we heard is that the original idea that we were going to work on, which was around a risk-based uh, access system, um, just didn't really apply. Like there, there were other things that were out there that would accomplish the need. And so we said, okay, well, what's a, what's a bigger need uh, in cybersecurity? And uh, it was late one night, uh, I was trying to get into our AWS environment and, you know, like LastPass popped up and I've got, you know, 18 different AWS accounts. I'm trying to get the right one in there. Then I'm waiting on a pin code and the pin code never comes. And it's just, it was like this train wreck of just trying to get into the AWS environment. And I, I made a comment to the guys on the phone. And I just said, you know, how come nobody's invented a way to get rid of passwords. Like this seems very antiquated. And everybody just got quiet on the phone. And it, like in that moment, we kind of knew, all right, this is what we need to go build. Hmm. So we talked about different approaches. Uh, we started doing some kind of rough prototyping. That was in uh, June of 2020. We had a prototype up uh, by September 2020. And then uh, from that point forward, for about the next six to nine months, we basically had to go build uh, all the other apps. And, and part of our design was you needed an app on every machine, uh, uses public-private key pairs. So the app would handle all the key rotation uh, and key generation, um, which necessarily necessitated that we built one for Windows, uh, Android, uh, iOS, and Mac, which means you had to really program four different versions of the same agent in four different languages. And we didn't really know any of the languages. So for nine months, um, we basically learned a bunch of different languages, uh, started programming, started talking to customers. Um, and in that time, there were a number of other companies that had entered entered into the passwordless market. So uh, we got a, further, a little bit further along, and what we were finding is that you had large incumbent providers like Microsoft, Google, Apple, um, that were moving into this kind of passwordless space. Um, and the conversations that we were having with uh, uh, kind of our, our pilot customers and uh, design partners was, why would you not just go use Microsoft's passwordless authentication? Why would you pay for another um but, you know, another add-on to it. And ultimately what they all said is like, we're not even interested in passwordless at the moment. Like our big problem is remote device security. And so we had built some stuff into our product uh, that would do kind of that risk-based access uh, security telemetry evaluation piece. And so we went back to our pilot customers said, okay, you know, if we 
put an automated check on this thing so you didn't have to log in, could you would you be interested in just using our agent to validate device security for remote people that are, are working remotely? And they were like, yeah, absolutely. So uh, we got a list of specs, uh, built it out over the next couple months, uh, took it to our first pilot customer and said, you know, hey, here's what we built. Does this hit, fit the bill? And they were like, yep, this is great. Send the contract. And literally it was like the easiest sale ever. I mean, the, the conversation was five minutes. <laughs> and uh, so we're like, you know, wow, this is awesome. You know, we made our first dollar. And uh, so really the moral of the story is you have to follow uh, what your customers say. Like they will guide you to the product that they need. However, and this is kind of the, the catch 22. Uh, so we made this pivot. Um, we started going out trying to raise money. Um, and at the same time, Microsoft is coming down market with their Intune, um, uh, Intune solution. Uh, Apple announced that they were launching their own small business essentials, uh, which is basically MDM. So you, but you have to be a fully Mac shop. Uh, and then Google uh, has its kind of MDM flavor. And so we hit a certain point where we didn't have enough differentiation in a market and we'd kind of listened to our customers uh, but they took us into a market space that was really already kind of populated mm -hmm. uh, with alternative solutions. So the idea was that we would go after, um, start at the bottom, small business, and then kind of work our way up the stack as we continue to build out the product. The problem is in a small business environment, it's very, very hard uh, to find customers at scale. Like you have to get a whole bunch of them. And uh, we kind of knew that it was time to wind things down when we were getting um pilot customers that had, you know, 100, 200 users, and we were significantly cheaper than, you know, a Microsoft solution would have been. And they were telling us that they were going with Microsoft. And really what it came down to is Microsoft could bundle all of their stuff together. We're not going to displace Microsoft Office. We're not going to displace Azure. And so it just made sense for them to pay, you know, the, the bundle price, get all of the features that they need across the enterprise. Um, and one of those features was Intune. So we just didn't have enough um, of competitiveness really to go against the bundling. And that was ultimately what where we hit a point where we said, yeah, we need to we need to wind down. Um, and we were close to the end of our runway. So we made the, the decision to pull it down. That's such a good use case of a scenario where you may have a fantastic idea, you may have a great product, great pricing, and everything on that end seems to line up. Customers are saying, yes, th this would be a great solution for us. But there are external factors that come in and say, you know what, this just probably isn't going to work out anyway. I, I feel like that's a such a good use case of that, that many people end up forgetting about it as they're starting a business, right? They're, they're so in love with the idea. And it's easy to do that. Uh, to fall in love with your idea when it's it sounds like it's a great idea, but then maybe there's other fa external factors outside of your control that that will prevent it from ever reaching its its full potential. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. I mean, we did really two full pivots. We had the first one uh, going into the pandemic, uh, started building out the passwordless stuff, um, and then we you know got to kind of the end of the roadmap with that, and it's like, all right, we got to pivot again. So you know, two years as a bootstrap company. I mean, we went through two full pivots. Um, we built uh, really, well, I'll call it 1.5 products because we had the features that we ended up just kind of flipping the script, the sales script on, um, kind of already built in and, you know, had happy customers. Um, that One of our customers, I'll, I'll never forget it, we uh, had got them signed up as a pilot. We said, well, we'll come by your office and get it installed on your machines. It's um, just so we could kind of learn our way through the, uh, the install process uh, from a customer perspective. And 
went did the install and within five, 10 minutes generated a report of, you know, here's all, all of your machines, here's the security on the machines and you know, here's where your gaps are and showed him the report. And he's like, yeah, we have a company that we outsource all this to. I don't understand why half of these machines are encrypted. And so it was one of those things where it's like immediately within five, 10 minutes, they got value from your product. Wow. And he's like, this is, this is amazing. Like this is the best money I've ever spent. And you know, that felt great. You know, it's, it's uh, we built a product, we provide somebody value. And ultimately that's, I think the goal of every startup. Absolutely. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about the passwordless authentication side. I know that's something a lot of people are talking about and are interested in. Can you walk me through from a user flow, but also maybe from a little bit more technical standpoint, what that actually means for the end users and how that can be applied either in the business setting or for even for individuals and how they could use passwordless authentication for accounts? What does that actually look like? So uh, I'll start with kind of the reasoning. Um, there's a, uh, a thing that I'm very, very fond of, uh, jobs to be done. Um, it's a Clayton Christensen thing. Uh, and basically, to really understand a customer, you have to understand the job that they're doing um, or, or they want to do. Um, when I want to go watch Netflix, uh, I'm not there to sign in. I, I'm there to watch Netflix. When I, when I go to enter my expense report, I'm not there to do authentication. I want to get access to the data and enter my expense report or my time report. So, you know, authentication from a, from a worker perspective, from a user perspective, is just a speed bump to actually getting what they want to do done. And so we said, okay, our, our goal is to get rid of that friction, get rid of that speed bump. Um, they go to a website, the website immediately recognizes who they are, um, logs them in and allows them to get, go do the job that they're there to do without any, any undertow. And so that was our, our first kind of design criteria for how we wanted to build the thing. Um, so things like passwords, pin codes, uh, waiting for an email link to be sent to you, like having, having to have two devices in your hand, both a laptop and something <laughs> to get a code on or a token. Um, all of, we threw all of that out. Like all of that is, is friction. It doesn't get you there any faster. Um, so we went back and we said, okay, well, what kind of technology could get us there? And what we settled on was uh, RSA keys, public private key pairs. Um, so you've got a, a private key and you've got the public key. Private key allows you to decrypt, public key allows you to encrypt. And so what we would do is uh, put a private key on the device inside of the secure enclave of the TPM chip. Um, that would identify, uniquely identify the device and uh, allow that device to authenticate to the back end um, with uh, basically doing a swap of secret codes between the public private key pair. So not at all different than what you would have, for example, like with uh, SSH and uh, using an RSA key auth. Um, so pretty standard stuff, well-proven, um, not trying to reinvent cryptography or encryption or anything crazy. Like we're just taking the technology that's there and applying it in a new way. The problem from a user perspective is a user, and I think of you know my 75-year-old mother, um, she would have no idea how to pre-generate an RSA key. So you've got to automate that for the user. And again, it goes back to where's, where is the friction? So the idea would be everybody can install an app. Um, you install the app, it takes care of all the key generation and both on the uh, server side and the client side. And then uh, that uh, key swap would enable you to basically take that device and use it portably across any service uh, that was using us for authentication. Um, that validates the device. Now you still have to validate the human in front of the keyboard. And that's where things like face ID and fingerprint ID uh, biometrics come into play. So the idea is to validate the user in front of the keyboard 
validate the specific keyboard uh, that they're coming from or device. And then on the flip side, validate that the data that they're going to is uh, what they're supposed to have access to. So, um, you know, if you think about it, like in AAA uh, standards, uh, access and authentication and authorization, um, we were starting at the access and authentication piece. Uh, and then we had kind of a scope later on to start building into the authorization space. Um, so you could really tie user to device to data. And that was uh, kind of the grand uh, umbrella of what we eventually wanted to turn the platform into, but we had to start in the middle on the access piece. Um, so with the key swap, um, all of that stuff worked. Uh, one of the more challenging pieces that we had to do was uh, we had to build um, an OIDC and a SAML uh, OpenID Connect and Security Assertion Markup Language uh, backend. But we didn't want to be reliant on any server-based systems because mm -hmm. we wanted uh, essentially infinite scale. So we recoded um, an entire SAML stack and an OADC stack in Lambda in AWS. So it was completely serverless implementation, um, which actually I think is probably the coolest thing that we did. Uh, and then uh, built out the agents and then you know, you got to get into the Google store and the app store and all that kind of stuff, which was a whole other headache. That sounds like it would make for a really interesting blog post or, or some kind of uh, explanation video if, if you ever find the time to do it, because I'd, I'd be curious to hear how you implemented that through AWS Lambda. For those listening who aren't familiar, of course, you can look it up, but AWS Lambda is a serverless offering from Amazon Web Services. So you can upload code to these Lambda functions, and then some event triggers that function to execute, the code runs, and then spits something back out, right? Uh, you, you also mentioned storing keys in the TPM, if I heard you correctly. For those listening, if you're not familiar with what that is, it's called a trusted platform module, uh, which is this chip that you typically have on on your devices, uh, like on the desktop, it might be stored on your your motherboard. I think some newer CPUs are also integrating some TPMs in, there, in them and whatnot. Uh, and so that can be used to store private keys, just like Dan was talking about there. So if I, if I got it right, just to kind of recap, you would generate these public private key pairs, and then you would also combine that with some kind of biometric authentication. Uh, and so those two factors would be able to, to tie that user to their device to then be able to say, hey, they have access to this or they don't have access to that. Yeah, exactly. And the key was, um, you know, from a design standpoint, you weren't relying on a second device. I was getting two independent factors, uh, one from the user um, and one from the device rather than two separate devices. So. Uh, you know, like the way that we do typically do 2FA today around pin codes, um, you've got a cell phone and let's say you're signing into something on your laptop. So it could be an SMS message or, you know, you open up the Duo app and, you know, you get a code or Microsoft Authenticator, Google Authenticator. Um, but it's still, you're not really validating the human in front of the keyboard because the password can easily be stolen. Uh, somebody could easily steal a device uh, and get into it and, you know, look at an SMS message or, you know, SIM swap or whatever. Um, so our, our approach was I have to pull a, a method of authentication from the user um, and a method of authentication from the device. And so our, I, I was real happy with the design that we had and, and kind of the logic behind it. Yeah, the, the technical side of it is, is really interesting. I hope you do find some time or interest to, to dive a little bit more into it and, and maybe share with the community how you built that out. That, that's super cool that you were able to do that in two years and and with a, a relatively small team. So I'd, I'd be curious to hear how you pulled that off, technologically speaking. That'd be really interesting. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, Paul and I were chatting, Paul, my co-founder, uh, and I were chatting last week, and I we have talked about taking all of our code just open sourcing it. Um, there's not... Uh, 
we haven't found anybody that's interested in buying it. And I don't think that there's anything that we would reuse it for. Um, so it might be just, you know, from a lab learning uh, experience uh, would be interesting just to put the code out there and say, all right, this is what we built. You know, if anybody wants to tinker with it, you know, have at it. Um, and there's, uh, I, I'm sure there's probably security vulnerabilities in it. And, you know, it's, I mean, <laughs> It's pretty raw code, um, so use at your own risk. Uh, but at the same time, um, I don't know. Maybe there's something cool there that lives on uh, somewhere in some side project. And that would be that would be kind of cool to us. So. Well, and speaking of nobody being interested in buying the code, and I think you made a comment too. Of of course, COVID caused a lot of this with remote work. But when you're going to some potential customers, they're saying we're not really interested in passwordless authentication right now. We're really interested in remote device management and things of that nature. Do you, what would you say is the current state of the passwordless authentication space? Do you think we are making a lot of progress towards that? Or do you feel like it's not really on people's radars at the moment? So I, I'll, I'll give you a, a wishy-washy answer, sort of. Um, I think for some folks, it makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, the problem, well, there's a couple of problems. The first is legacy systems. Um you know, like signing into a Windows machine, the only person that can really affect the passwordless experience of signing into a Windows machine is Microsoft. Uh, you know, signing into Google, signing into Apple devices, um, the only people that can really do that is is Apple. So yeah, you can put software on there, but is a company going to rush out and spend uh, limited dollars on that? Is it a real, really, really big problem that's going to get focused? And I don't think so. Um, the second component of that uh, is kind of one level up is if you've got uh, an SSO today, whether it's Okta or, uh, uh, you know, integrating to Office 365 or, you know, SSO back to uh, G Suite, uh, if you're using Google, you're not going to rip out all of your SSO stuff just to put in passwordless. So what you're going to probably do in what I would do is, so I, if I was a CISO, uh, is wait for Okta and Microsoft to have uh, like Windows Hello uh, up and working, have Okta's passwordless stuff up and working, uh, where it becomes just a simple feature to a broader platform rather than trying to make a huge strategic shift. Now, if you're building, um, let's say you're, you're building a new SaaS service, uh, your startup and you're coding a new SaaS service. Uh, defaulting to providing a username and password, I don't think is necessarily the right way. I think you try to figure out how to um, how to build a better sign-in experience. But at the same time, um, social login, I think, will generally replace uh, the ability for people to have uh, usernames and passwords directly into apps. So really what what the conversation kind of shifts into is I need an SSO or a centralized form of identity for uh, enterprise and I need a centralized SSO for consumer. Um, and each of those different groups have different needs and wants. And when you start kind of extrapolating even on that conversation, then you fall into this uh, self-sovereign identity conversation of wouldn't it be nice if we just had one identity that was infinitely portable across the internet? Um, and that raises a whole bunch of different questions. So I think the reason that passwords have stuck along uh, for as long as they have is that the way that we compute is built around the mechanics of having something that's super easy to use that everybody kind of understands. Um, and at the same time, yeah, it's not the most secure. So we've kind of 
duct taped over it a little bit uh, to make it a little bit better. But I don't think it's the end all be all. So I, I think that there, there's a whole lot of motion and development that is going to happen between uh, self-sovereign identity, uh, kind of passerless, and just, I'll call it identity uh, on the internet um, that has not yet played out. So if you're adopting passerless, you're spending dollars on something that's really still pretty bleeding edge where a lot of things haven't been uh, real firmly established yet. But uh, if you already have an SSO that has a passerless system that kind of makes sense and that, that mostly works, then it would make sense to adopt it uh, just to get rid of some of the password risk. But even then, you still have a ton of legacy systems out there that aren't going to support passwordless for a long, long time. I mean, it sounds like there's so many different challenges there. You not only have the technical logical challenge that's there, you have to find the right solution, but then you also have to be able to work with those legacy systems, just like you said. Also, you have a lot of gatekeeping. You've got the Googles, the Apples, the Microsofts. So unless they're tackling it or unless they're on board with it, it can also be tricky to, to inject yourself in the, in the middle there. So yeah, the, the, you're, you're battling multiple different fronts at the same time. Um, and then you have to get buy-in from the organization to, to buy your solution. So that sounds really tricky. Um, you look, look it, it didn't work out, but it sounds like you had a fantastic time of trying to build it just from talking to you today. And in the past, you, I can tell you're really passionate about it. It really sounds like you had a, a fun experience going through it. Maybe not every day was fun. I'm sure you had some challenges that weren't necessarily super fun, but overall it, it sounds like you learned a lot from it and had a great time. Is that a fair statement to say? Oh yeah, hundred um, percent. You know, even if it meant the same outcome, it's a, a journey that I would still gladly go on. I mean, I learned more in two years um, than I've ever learned in my life. Uh, just all the things that go into running a startup. Um, you know, pitching, fundraising, uh, building a product, uh, marketing, sales. I mean, it's just it's a wide open canvas that you just get to go learn uh, and explore. And you know, we did a ton of things wrong, um, and that's totally par for the course. And, you know, ultimately the idea didn't work, but it was uh, money well invested. Um, my, my stepdad told me once, um, every education has a price. And if this particular education that uh, the three of us went on, it was absolutely, absolutely worth it. Um, I, I wouldn't change anything about it. So with that said, what's next for you? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, I have no idea. Um, I think uh, what, I, what I want to do, what I have arrived at, is I want to build stuff uh, with cool people, uh, the type of people that I wouldn't mind being locked in a Antarctic research station for six months with <laughs> type of people, you know, where it's like you just you get along, um, you just you know respect one another, you're you know feeding off of each other's energy and ideas and creativity uh, to build stuff. So exactly what that is, I don't know. Um, maybe join uh, you know Series A or C level startup. Um, Maybe go back into CISO life uh, and do some CISO stuff. Uh, maybe do some consulting. Uh, somebody suggested the other day that I uh, maybe go explore uh, doing some teaching, uh, maybe down at Georgia State or Georgia Tech. Um, I've done some guest lecturing and stuff before, which I really, really enjoyed. Um, so I don't know. I, I think right now it's it's really just going to explore, um, see what's out there, see what uh, see where I can contribute the most, and. Uh, I just find that that right the right team that that I want to get with. 
I love that. And I can relate to it. I feel like I'm always exploring a little bit as well. And, and sometimes you find something that just grabs your attention. And before you know it, you're engulfed in it. And that's your path, right? You're, you yep. don't even, you're not even consciously thinking about it. You're just doing it because it's fun and you're doing it with fun people. And that's just what sticks. So keep us posted. I'm, I'm very curious to hear what you end up doing. Either way, all those options sound like a great time and a great fit for you. So yeah, have fun. Don't rush into it. Just enjoy the time figuring it out and uh, and keep us posted when you do end up figuring it out. Absolutely. So let's move into a quick fire round as we wrap up this episode. This is just some quick questions and short answers back at me. It doesn't have to be related to IT. It's just about you and, and your interests, starting with what are some of your hobbies outside of work? Uh, let's see. So lately I've been marathon running. Um, I got into running a couple of years ago. And uh, so I've got a couple of marathons this year. Uh, and then one in, uh, in January. So just a lot of, a lot of running. Um, I used to be real big into cars. Uh, I haven't done much car stuff lately. I built a car a few years, few years ago. Um, so I don't know, maybe find another, uh, a car building project restoration or something like that. But, uh, I don't know right now really it's just, uh, kind of join the time off, um, then try and, uh, I don't know, just enjoy it. I hate running, so I applaud you, but I definitely can't relate with that one. But the, the car projects sound really fun. <laughs> I'm not a huge car guy. Like, I, I don't work on them. I don't really understand how they work fundamentally, but uh, I enjoy them. They're they're nice to look at and nice to drive. I, I, I didn't either, uh, which is why I built one. Uh, so that's kind of my personality, right? If you want to, you know, understand how a car works, build one. If you want to, um, you know, understand how a business works, go start do go to a startup, Um Sometimes you just have to set the bar really, really high and just go towards it. That's a great mentality. I like it. What's one of your favorite books or movies or even podcasts that you're either currently listening to or that you've listened to in the past or watched and it's just really stuck with you and it doesn't have to be IT related? Uh, let's see. Favorite books. Um you know, I really like Snow Crash, uh, which is probably bad to say because this whole metaverse uh, bubble stuff, it's all marketing hype. Um, the uh, I don't know, Snow Crash is really good. Uh, the Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Uh, it's a Robert Heinlein book. Uh, it was really, really good. I, I refer back to them on occasion uh, and I'll read through them again. And in your opinion, what's one area that we're completely missing the mark, either as an organization, society or whatever else in terms of cybersecurity? You know, I think on the cybersecurity side, the biggest thing is how to how to get more people into the industry. Um, I was actually trading emails uh, right before we started to talk with somebody, uh, and we were talking about this new SEC uh, guidelines for public companies to talk about what experience they have on the board and cyber experience and policies and such. Um, and I, you know, I, the comment that I made was, you know, we already have a shortage of people that are in cyber. I think it's something like six hundred thousand jobs will go unfilled this year. Um, and if there's new regulations that say you have to have all this new stuff, like where are the people going to come from? So, you know, I, I don't have an answer, but uh, I, I see that that's an area that as an, as an overall industry, we have to figure out and how do, how do we get more people in it and uh, get them experienced. So, Dan, if people want to follow up with you, how can they connect and reach out? Uh, best place is just to find me on LinkedIn. Um, just do a search. I'll pop up uh, and uh, yeah, just shoot me a note or a message on there. 
Dan, thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. I've, uh, I've enjoyed learning about your experience with the startup, and I'm glad we're able to, to share it through here as well. And hopefully people learn about that, whether it's passwordless authentication or some of the challenges that you faced and, and how you went through that. Uh, but thanks again for, for joining, and thank you, everybody, for tuning into the episode as well. Please do reach out to Dan to thank him for his time on LinkedIn by searching for his name. I think you're going by Daniel Fry on LinkedIn, right? Uh, I think so. Okay, Maybe. either Dan or Daniel Fry, something like that. You'll you'll find them. Uh, we're we're mature contacts. So, yeah, just do a search for Rakitansky. I'll I'll pop up. Perfect. And yeah, give him a big thank you for sharing his time with us. And again, thanks for tuning in. And I'll see you next time. Thank you.